Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by fellow co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, and author of the New York Times best-selling book, Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for coming back. Hey, man. Great to be back on the podcast. So, Rick, today I want to talk a little bit about next year, where we are politically and organizationally. So, First and foremost, I want to say that you and Stuart and Joe and everyone that works with us at the Lincoln Project can't be more thankful for the passion and support that everybody in our community, whether or not it's here on this podcast, on the streaming services, the millions of people that follow us on social media or the million people on our email list. You know, it'll be two years since we founded this in just a couple of weeks, which is hard to believe in and of itself. And, you know, we started as this sort of little fledgling pirate ship. We grew to be, you know, this gigantic power projecting aircraft carrier. Now we sort of return to our roots, which I think is someplace that I certainly enjoy because it gives us a chance to really be flexible. But what do you think is going to be the most important thing that we can do as we move forward in the 2022 midterms? Because what I'm finding is what we always find, which is most super PACs out of every 24 months, there's like a nine months on 15 months off cycle. Maybe it's even 17 and seven, right? It's 17 months off and seven months active. And, you know, even for a lot of the national party committees, as you know, for a long time, that's how it was, right? Is the off year was the time when it was a skeleton staff, skeleton crew, you know, Congress was doing its thing. The president was doing their thing and everybody was really focused on governance. And then, you know, now it's the permanent campaign. And so we've never stopped engaging. We've never stopped fighting. And so now how do we take what we've been doing and start to harness that into specific races, you know, across the country. As we've talked about a little bit with our ad roadmap, we are beginning to lay out for people, you know, what the mission is. And we see there are going to be a targeted number of House and Senate seats that are going to be very vital for the control of those two bodies and a couple of governor's races that are going to be very important, not only for 22, but for 24 as well, because Trump is working very hard to set up the right number of governors in 2024 and the right number of state legislative bodies in 24, where no matter what the number is in the Electoral College or what the number is in the popular vote, these people will just say, nope, it's all Trump. We're good. We're good. It's Donald. He won. We'll send a multiple slate of electors. You know what to do. Wink, wink to Congress. So, you know, those races are all going to be very important. And, you know, one of the critiques of LP that is a very facile and wrong critique is, oh, they just do ads. They just do ads. You know, what people don't understand is we ran a multivariate political messaging, media, digital, and social campaign in 2020 in a lot of key states, including in a lot of key states where we think we contributed meaningfully to the margin of victory. You know, we didn't need to go into Wisconsin and move a million votes. We needed to go into Wisconsin and move about 75,000 votes, which we did. 
you know, we didn't need to go into the Georgia special elections and move 5 million people in the Atlanta metro. We needed to move about 150,000, which we helped to do. So we'll be back in to a lot of these key races and key states with the sort of multivariate package we do. People think it's all ads. That's part of the iceberg effect of the Lincoln Project. They see the viral ads at the top of the iceberg sticking out of the water, but what gutted the Trump-tanic was also the stuff that they didn't see underneath the water. So that'll be back in the 22 cycle for sure. All of these things will come down to the margins. These races will come down to hundreds of votes or thousands of votes or you know, maybe in a giant Senate race, tens of thousands of votes, but it's not going to be many. And they will all come down to the, if the losing side had done a little bit of this and a little bit of that better, more effectively earlier, it would have made the difference. Campaigns too matter on the margins, right? Good campaigns get the margin and bad campaigns typically don't. That's how these things work out. And that's sort of an, a longstanding rule of politics. You know, that has nothing to do with Trump or any of the craziness we see today. It's just that good campaigns and candidates tend to win. In competitive situations. Candidate quality matters and campaign quality matters a lot. Right. And so I think that, you know, as we look forward here, too, is that to your point, there's a lot of these places that are important because remember, guys, that the defeat of the Republican Party and what it's become is important in and of itself. But also because a group like that that has that little in the way of ethics, morality or direction other than for its own benefit must be stopped, but also because it serves the dual role of being the way to help, as I said earlier, preserve democracy, which is we are not Democrats, right? We are an independent organization. As Stuart likes to say, Rick, we don't have anything to sell, as you just said. We don't sponsor legislation. We don't have a White House. We don't have a Congress. We're not lobbyists, never will be. Right. We're not going in and asking for a semicolon to be put in a particular bill someplace. So all we do is go out and do the best job we can given the circumstances. And I think that one thing that we see in these places is that the way that we operate is different. If we had all the money in the world, would we go buy broadcast television? We might, but we might not. There have never been more channels into the individual American as far as communications are concerned, and never have they each been as inefficient as they are today. You couldn't be more right about that, Reed. I mean, Stuart and I came out of the politics side of television advertising. And back when Stuart started, and I'm like a half a generation after Stuart, we used to be able to say, okay, we got a problem, and we're going to go out and bomb for two weeks. We're going to spend 3,000 gross rating points of TV, and in the Oakland County, Michigan media market is going to change the whole ballgame. And that's not the world anymore. You can't do that anymore. It doesn't work. You know, we have, there are a lot of super PACs out there, you know, Republican and Democratic super PACs, that at the last you know, couple of weeks of the campaign, dumped 30, 40, 50 million dollars of TV, and it had no meaningful impact. It had no meaningful effect. Nothing you could even speculate might have been a meaningful effect. And so that is the old way of doing it. They take these ads, they build these terrible, boring, dull ads, they focus group the hell out of them, and they make them even more boring. They drive away any kind of passion or commitment from the viewers of the ads that they're making. Then they think that they're going to, okay, we're just going to put a zillion dollars on HGTV and it'll get the women to watch. And it doesn't work. You have to hit the target at 100 different places. I would say this, too, is that I believe about a year ago, the Senate Leadership Fund, which is Mitch McConnell's super PAC, I think by this time in the Georgia runoff had already spent something like 
between election day november 3rd and like now had already spent 200 million dollars on advertising in georgia which basically means that you couldn't swing a dead cat without running into one of these ads a year ago and yet you know who's sitting in the u.s senate Raphael warnock and john ossoff i think it's a fundamentally different perspective of campaigning which is Obviously, you know, the candidate and the campaign have to have a message that resonates with voters. But you also understand that even in these crazy times, Rick, a lot of this stuff comes down to math, which is whether we want to believe it or not and whether it disappoints us or not, most voters see an R or a D behind a candidate's name and they have long held preconceived notions about that. So let's say that gets you to 45, 45 regardless of whether or not the Republican Party is the authoritarian movement it is today, or whether or not it's the party of Mitt Romney, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, Ronald Reagan. So now you got 10% in the middle, and you got to go find those people. And some are going to lean towards the R behind the name, and some are going to lean towards the D behind the name, and some are just going to say, I'm up for grabs every time. And then there's also the added, how do you go find those people? And I rarely compliment Trump, but Trump was and has been excellent at finding those people who were otherwise not interested in participating at all. What we would call low propensity voters, they vote one to two times out of every four elections, right, guys? That's how we see propensity typically. If, if you have four chances to vote, how many times do you participate? One is low, two is mid, three and four are high. Most of the time, people who vote one or two times are people who like vote in presidentials, Rick, and they never vote in anything else. Presidential generals, I should say. And a lot of times those folks are completely ignored because it's like, well, I know that there's a 75% chance they won't turn out anyway. And if they turned out, I don't know how they're going to vote because I have little to no data on them. Why would I even encourage them to participate? And the idea that was very much extant for all of our early years of politics was that there were a lot of unknowns and there are a lot of inabilities to figure out how you know, to model people. We're all much better at that now. And the Trump people, frankly, were quite good at modeling who their audience and who their base voters were and to turn them up. And Republicans have become very good at finding low propensity voters, terrifying them and motivating them. And, you know, I don't mean that as a compliment for how or why they do it, but it is a reality. And we have to face that reality as something that is a part of our politics now that is not really something we can escape or pretend isn't an ongoing factor in how elections are going to be won and run. And that's something I think that we, you know, to toot our own horn a little bit here, that is something we're very realistic about. We don't live in the fantasy world of, you know, it's all going to go back to the old Republican Party. We're going to be fine. Everything's going to be great. There's nothing to worry about. Chris Christie will save us. We don't live in that world. And we see what Republicans are willing to do in the states right now. We see what they're willing to do in terms of restricting voting rights. We see what they're willing to do in terms of forcing every candidate and every elected official to embrace the Trump big lie. And we see how pernicious a lot of their supporters are. You know, not every Republican is an alt-right racist crazy person, but all the alt-right racist crazy people right now, they're Republicans. We spend a lot of time talking to all sorts of people. And, you know, the one thing I find when I talk to people who are self-described Republicans who don't like the Republican Party is, well, I'm a Republican. I don't like my party, but I'm not a Democrat. And I don't think I want to vote for them either. And so that's one of those things, too, which is, you know, we talked about going back almost 
pre-pandemic when we were at the Cooper Union in New York City about the idea that like there's a lot of Americans who feel politically homeless. And they feel like because things have become so entrenched that finding a place to go that's different than the house they lived in is not only difficult, but it's some sort of betrayal to themselves. And, and what we like to say, folks, is like, consider us like a political Airbnb. You don't have to live with us forever. Come stay a while. If you want to stay forever, we'd love to have you. But for now, just stay with us and vote the way that democracy demands and needs desperately, Rick. And then, you know, once we're through this mess, go back to where you are. But we also understand, Rick, that, and I want to get into sort of the concerns and hurdles we have, is that every campaign is different now. We should not fight the last war because it's over. And that's typically the way people get in trouble. And that we, as the Lincoln Project, but also our allies, have to go make the case to these voters, that 10% in the middle, time and again. They're just not going to come your way because they fit into some demographic slice or some economic slice. They might be more willing to listen, more amenable to coming across the line, but that doesn't mean they're just going to do what you want because they did last time. That's right. And, you know, Reed, we had this conversation. You and I were down in Texas a few weeks ago talking to people. They're like, why are we losing Hispanics in the Rio Grande Valley? And we answered them very clearly. Like, those folks in the Rio Grande Valley? You think, okay, they're Hispanic, they're going to vote this way, this way, and this way because they're going to genetically be Democrats. And it's just not right anymore. It's, it's just not how it works. So if there's a benefit, a weird sort of benefit to this era where all the things have become scrambled, it is this. It is going to make the Democratic Party sit down and pay close attention to the realities of demographics in this country and not just the sort of political X or Y is this demographic group or this ideological group. They're going to vote for me automatically every time. And I will say this, they took African-American voters for granted for quite a long time. And when the drop off at African-American voters for Hillary Clinton was analyzed after the 2016 election, it wasn't that Trump captured a whole bunch of them. It was that he didn't get blown out. I think it's vital that Democrats understand you cannot take people for granted. You cannot look at this country as homogenous, and you know there are way too many. I'm not talking about our friends in like Mi Vecino or Voto Latino, but there are way too many Democrats who put every Hispanic in the same box, and they say, okay, they're Hispanic, they're going to be liberal in economics and the, this and this. They're just not. That is a quick way to lose a lot of Hispanic support. It's an extraordinarily diverse, complex community, and you know I think there are a number of folks on the Democratic side who have finally realized this, especially after last year where they saw the pickup of Hispanic male votes for Trump. And there was a meaningful number there. And they need to figure out that they're not the same voter that they might get in AOC's district in the Bronx. It's a very different country. You had a lot of Hispanic voters in Florida and South Florida um, who on paper in every other way are Democratic voters or should be. You had Dominicans and Venezuelans and Caribbean voters they have this terrible experience with socialism, and nobody would go down there and say, listen, no matter what the Republicans are telling you, we're not Maduro. We're not Castro. It's some hard work that is going to require them to do kind of what we do. It's to look at where we are, who we are, what we came from, and be honest about it. And sometimes say, yeah, we were some shitty people. We fucked this up. We did this or that, right or wrong. And I think it's important that they have a realistic approach and that's one of the things that we've you know, been willing to do from the start is, you know, be the people that tell you how things really are. You know, we're not here to sugarcoat shit for people. So, Rick, that's one question I have, you know, as we're looking through the hills we have to climb in 2022. And there are plenty. Each of them, you know, we can surmount. 
but that's one question I have for is how do we convince allies who are so ostensibly dedicated to the idea of dissecting voters down to the nth degree with data and then ultimately still seeing preconceived notions or whatever it is that ultimately inform their decisions about messaging or how they're going to do something because they're afraid of, to your point, like this activist group, that activist group, as opposed to saying a Latino voter in the Rio Grande Valley or in South Florida is probably fundamentally different than a Latino voter in New York City. There's nothing wrong with that. The only thing wrong with it is assuming that they're the same. Right. It's just reality. It is something I think that is enormously important for Democrats to, to focus on as you go forward here. The argument that diversity is a huge part of the Democratic Party, it would be fascinating to see them express some recognition that political diversity exists too in the Democratic Party. So this idea of a politically homogenous country is just something I think that is absolutely deadly. And look, the Republicans can make that same mistake too of thinking that you know every part of the country is Mississippi. It's a category error they make with remarkable frequency as well. Well, and I think there's a lot of cultural arguments that go to what you're saying about that first point, which is the heterogeneity, if that's a word, the differences among us create strength because it creates those bonds that wouldn't otherwise agree. And it can make it that much more difficult when people are dedicated to a common mission to break them apart because they have agreed to put aside particular differences for the moment, as opposed to what we see now in the Republican Party, which demands purity, which means that when there's somebody who does step out of line, it's like they're sheared off the iceberg, right? Like it just falls into the sea. And so culturally, that's the message that, you know, we hear from the coasts, but then politically, they sort of turn their backs on it and say, no, everybody's the same. We're going to message the same way we've always messaged. And they just put the blinders on because so many of our friends in the higher ranks of the Democratic Party are on the coasts in the big cities. And I think the press is this way, too. The national media is, you know, whenever they go east of the Rockies or west of the Mississippi, it's like an anthropological experiment. It's like, look at these people who don't live like we do, but they're not carrying around deep fried Oreos or eating pork chops off the bone in the street. And it's like they're amazed by it, right? <laughs> That's perfectly done, though. I mean, the predicates to win a national election. You know, Trump actually got that in a way that a lot of Democrats didn't. He went out and activated a bunch of low propensity white working class voters who had no faith in anybody. And as dark as his motivations are and as terrible as the results were, he recognized that, you know, he was going to destroy the old Republican Party and remake it in his own image. And that became something that the Democrats still do not have a counterweight against especially because so much of our politics has become very stratified. So much of it has become very much driven by the culture wars that we never, ever get away from anymore. And, you know, our friend Trigby always talks about the Stalin rule. You don't have to love all your allies in a fight, but you certainly shouldn't look away from people that can help you understand how to break up the enemy's intentions, actions, and plans. And we modestly like to think that we are a part of that. Right. And again, I think that, you know, all coalition warfare is difficult, right, throughout history. In World War II, no one could stand to be in the same oxygen with Charles de Gaulle, but he was who they had, and they had to deal with him, and they dealt with him. You know, Eisenhower had to deal with warring generals of two people who spoke the same language, theoretically, but like could barely stand the sight of each other, even though they were all on the same side trying to save, you know, the world from Nazism. And to your point, we sent 
billions of dollars and hundreds of millions of tons worth of equipment and tanks and boots and everything else to the Soviet Union because, you know, I think Franklin Roosevelt had made a decision that it was in the United States' best interest to have the Russians and the millions of Russians that were fighting on the front keeping the Nazis occupied, you know, while the United States got its shit together, you know, ready to enter the war. And so those are all hard decisions. You know, sometimes history looks back at them and said, how could you do that? But in this moment, in this fight, that's where I think finding the broadest and deepest coalition, as we've discussed, from, you know, the Democrats to AOC, to Liz Cheney, to whoever it is, to groups and states, you know, everybody's got a role to play and everybody has to play it to the hilt and say, this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to go do it. But we also understand, Rick, that like nobody wants to be told what to do, right? Like we have to be realistic about human psychology. Mm -hmm. We often talk about, you know, if you made it a military analogy, we're like a SEAL team. We're good at parachuting in or swimming up onto the beach, blowing stuff up, getting the first strike, the first hit accomplished. But our job is not to go in and like rebuild all the roads and sewer plants after that. We can't hold that territory. We need people to follow in through the breach, follow in through the hole we blast in the Republican wall sometimes, and then get to work and do the things that are strategically and politically effective. And those are not always easy for our allies to say, okay, well, we can't do X even though we want to. We can't do Y even though we want to. And doing what you need to do in politics is more important than doing what you want to do in politics. Well, and I would say this before we move on to the advantages we have going in next year are, which is I do believe, and I've said this and the listeners are going to be totally sick of me saying it, which is most of human history has been decided on the idea that people were afraid to do something because of the what if. If we do this, this might happen, as opposed to we should do this because if we don't, the bad thing's going to happen. The corollary to that is the more that you try and avoid the bad thing that you're terrified of, the more you will find your way to it. I take this as a maxim in my bones. And this is why we, we went in against Greg Abbott, because if Greg Abbott had done everything he needed to do to contain the coronavirus and to winterize the grid in Texas, which, as we've noted, is disconnected from the rest of the country, he would be sitting at about 65% approval and Beto O'Rourke would not be running for governor. Instead, he said, I am scared to death of being primaried from my right, so I am going to do everything I can to try and shore up that very conservative base of Texas Republican voters, which has, of course, done what we knew it would do, which is alienate otherwise normal human beings who also call themselves Texans. So now he sits at 41%. We're going into winter again with a grid that is as unreliable now as it was 12 months ago. And you've got Beto O'Rourke moving around the state, raising money hand over fist, generating crowds of thousands of people while Greg Abbott speaks to Republican federated women's groups and goes off and does more crazy shit with Dan Patrick in the legislature. And opened up the door to people like Don Huffines and Alan West, two of the most insane people to ever run for office, not only in Texas, but probably in the country. But the point is that they did everything out of fear, everything for a guy like Greg Abbott or even, frankly, Ron DeSantis, or as we've seen, Kevin McCarthy is predicated on fear of the base coming after them. And so let's talk about that, Rick, as, as we talk about some of the things we have going for us. So let's use real world examples. So we're recording this on Thursday, December 2nd. This week, we saw that Lauren Boebert made up a story about being in an elevator with Ilhan Omar and calling her a jihadist, which then went viral. 
which then caused Representative Nancy Mace, another freshman congresswoman from South Carolina, to say this is ridiculous, like no one should be that bigoted or racist, which subsequently made Marjorie Taylor Greene attack Nancy Mace for attacking Lauren Boebert. Now, Rick, only people like us would see that stuff and say, well, this is good news, because to me, it illustrates the true insanity of the Republican Party, and it opens the minds of Americans writ large, but also the voters we need to say, are these the people you really want in charge of anything? Because as Marjorie Taylor Greene said on Wednesday, she is the Republican Party now. It's not Nancy Mace. It's not Liz Cheney. It's not anyone we would have thought of as a Republican in our day in the organization. She's the exemplar of what the party has become. And confronting Americans with that, with the insanity and the darkness of these people, is something I think that is politically inevitable that it's going to have the effect of a lot of what we saw last year, which was people, they're like, oh, I don't want to vote for a Democrat. But they also didn't want to be grouped in with Trump's cruelty and venality and viciousness and all those things that made them uncomfortable. Because our politics for a long time let people be pretty comfortable with their decisions. You know, if you were voting for Mitt Romney, you were pretty comfortable with that decision. If you voted for Barack Obama, you were pretty comfortable with that decision. Now, that has changed, I think, quite meaningfully. Because, you know, there were Republicans who held their nose and said, I don't want to vote for Trump, but I'm going to do it. We were able to grab some of those people because his behavior was so excessive and so horrible. And we'll be back in that spot, I think, as we go forward, because, you know, the Republicans have now incentivized and they do not punish Marjorie Taylor Greens and Paul Gosars and all the lunatic mutant parades, I call it. They don't punish them. They don't say, hey, cut that out. Well, and as we've seen, you know, as you mentioned, Trigvi, before that the Republican Party of today is a vertical power structure, an authoritarian power structure, which, guys, means it's like a big Jenga game. When the Marjorie Taylor Greens and Nancy Maces and Lauren Boeberts and Kevin McCarthy's are fighting with each other, those pieces are getting knocked around somewhere in the middle of that Jenga tower. And that's what we want. And that's, I think, Rick, one of the things that we did to Trump in particular in 20 and we're able to do to these people generally is get in those wedges and drive them further apart. We started doing this with McConnell and Trump back in April, as far back as April, and we're starting to see that bear fruit now. We started to do it with DeSantis, I think, back in September. And a lot of it they'll do on their own because, again, guys, this is the one thing you have to understand, and it sounds weird to call it an advantage, but they're all so personally dedicated to their own advancement and to their own power that they also cannot be cohesive, except in their insanity and their awfulness because they all hate each other as much as they hate anybody else. In a nihilistic, fascistic organism, everything is predicated on proximity to the leader, proximity to money, proximity to power, and there is a lot to be said for being able to pull those blocks out of the Jenga game and getting it to teeter so that they focus on one another rather than on the bad guys, or they focus on us, which we're happy to do, because if they're turned toward us, that means that they're not focused on the Democrat for that moment. They're fighting with a third party whose only job is to keep them occupied. And that's one thing that I think we have the advantage of is, Rick, is that because we answer to our followers, we answer to the millions of people who make up the Lincoln Project and to our own consciousness, that we're able to go do those things that other folks aren't able to do. And I think that that's the thing, too. We even saw that the Club for Growth, which used to be like a pro-economic group, right, years ago, they've been kicking the hell out of J.D. Vance 
in the Ohio Senate race, Republican Ohio Senate race, for his previously anti-Trump remarks. Uh, there was a story out in Politico today, Rick, and this is why we say these things are advantageous, where Trump asked the Club for Growth people to take the ads down, not because he cares about J.D. Vance, but because he thinks it makes him look bad. Correct. You know, folks, we'll just preview this here. You should probably expect us to run some ads praising J.D. Vance just because it will cause the dissension and the craziness to ratchet up. And we will once again occupy their brains rent free. And, you know, a lot of Democratic allies of ours just lack an appreciation. I say this a lot, and I mean this, you know, not only in, in campaigns, but in things like the 1-6 Commission. They lack an appreciation for how spectacle is a powerful political tool and how causing a ruckus in the cohort of the bad guys is a very powerful political tool. And it's something that they should embrace, I think, a lot more passionately. Right. And guys, I think this is the other thing, too, is that remember that all of this stuff has a means to an end, which is let's use again, Rick, as the Ohio Senate races, for instance, which is whether or not it's J.D. Vance or Josh Mandel, there's a bunch of other people running in this race. We want those people as torn up and damaged among each other, trying to go for that Trump thing and pushing themselves as far outside the mainstream as they possibly can. So that when the primary is over and Tim Ryan, who's the Democrat from Eastern Ohio, who's right for that race, is now ready to take that person on, he has had clean air for a year. He's raised a lot of money. He's been able to move around the state with very little opposition and very little attention. And now whoever the Republican nominee is in that race has a hell of a long hill to climb because even though Ohio has skewed pretty conservative, it's not crazy conservative yet. And Tim Ryan is the kind of conservative labor Democrat who should do well in that state. And does anybody see Josh Mandel as a United States senator? And I think the answer is no. That's right. All right. So, Rick, let's turn to some nuts and bolts here. So let's talk about where we're going to play next year. From our perspective, helping preserve democracy means that in this moment, Democrats need to maintain and grow control in the United States House of Representatives. They need to pick up seats in the United States Senate to get past a 50-50 split, and that there are key governor's races in swing states for 2024 that must be held by the Democrat, taken by the Democrat, or a new Democrat must be elected if someone's you know termed out like in Pennsylvania. So let's start with the Senate and the governor's races, because the House races are still a little bit up for grabs. So in the United States Senate, Rick, it's places like Ohio, Wisconsin, where Ron Johnson is running for reelection, Pennsylvania, where Pat Toomey has retired. And so now you'll have an open race on both the Democratic and the Republican side, a place like Arizona, where Mark Kelly was elected two years ago, but has to be reelected for the balance of John McCain's term and places like Florida with Marco Rubio and Val Demings. And so, guys, if there's a good map, Rick, for 2022. It appears to be the U.S. Senate map for Democrats. I think that's right, Reed. And I think Tim Ryan is just going to be a knockout candidate. He is exactly on point for that seat. I have to say this. In Florida, Val Demings has surprised a lot of people. Her fundraising has been absolutely colossal. She has been very disciplined as a candidate. She is running as an ex-cop who is not going to put up with the defund the police bullshit. She is absolutely shocking a lot of Florida political people because they thought, you know, although Marco is basically a very hated figure, not only in the Democratic Party, but in the Republican Party as well, 
he is a guy who gave himself over to Trump, and Trump really fundamentally broke him. I mean, fundamentally broke Marco. But she has really surprised a lot of people with how well she's done so far, both as a candidate and as a fundraiser. Still a hard hill to climb, still a big race, still a very expensive race, but I've got an eye on that race. And I say that, folks, as somebody who supported Marco Rubio you know, when he was in the House and when he you know, ran for the U.S. Senate and who was doing a Marco Rubio outside super PAC in the 2016 race before Trump really took over. I regret it because I think Marco was a compassionate and smart guy, but he gave himself over to the darkness. And now, you know, tweeting elliptical Bible verse whenever you, you know, can't look at what you've done is no way to live. So Val's got a lot of people excited. I think in Ohio, again, we're, we're looking at a very busy race there. If it's Mandel, fantastic. Jane Timken, who was Mitch McConnell's candidate, is now out of that race, is going to run for Congress, which I think is an interesting sign. Pennsylvania, a lot in play there. We'll see how the Democratic primary works out. I don't think the Republicans, with Dr. Oz, they may have bitten off more than they can chew. Apparently, the oppo file on this guy is a mile thick. Now, we do know that being a celebrity often overcomes a lot of rationality. I think he may well get the nomination because he already speaks fluent crazy, but I don't necessarily think he's as easy a lift as the Republicans are thinking. And two other states that we should mention. One is Nevada, where Cortez Masto may be in for a tougher race than anybody thought she was. And then, you know, one that's probably a reach, Rick, but we shouldn't ignore, which is Missouri, where two of the Republican candidates are the guy who he and his wife pulled guns on peaceful protesters walking by their house and the former disgraced governor, Eric Greitens, who was both a stolen Valor Navy SEAL, loathed by the Navy SEAL community, and a guy who tied up his girlfriend in the basement, took pictures of her, and then threatened to release them if she didn't do what he wanted. So, like, that is today's Republican Party. So, like, you know, it's a conservative state, to say the least, but are these the kinds of people that even Missourians, who I think are writ large, probably pretty decent human beings, like, want representing them? And so I think that's one that's interesting to look at. All right, so, Rick, let's turn to these governor's races. And so, guys, remember that if we go back to January 6th, and Rick, it's hard to believe it's been almost a year since then, is that there was all this talk of, you know, and even leading up to January 6th was whether or not state legislatures could send, you know, an alternate slate of electors, right? You know, when you vote for president, guys, you're voting for a slate of electors in your state that represent Rick Wilson or Reed Galen, right? You're not actually voting for us. Those electors then go to the state capitol on, I believe it's December 14th, they cast their ballots for their candidate, in this case, Joe Biden or Donald Trump. But in the context of trying to throw as much chaos and attempt to keep Trump in office, all these Republican legislatures said, well, maybe we'll send our own slate of electors. So why does that matter, guys? Because in 2024, in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Joe Biden won all those races. Those are all states with Republican legislatures. Right now, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania have Democratic governors, right? If the legislature there was try to do something, a Democratic governor could say, no, you don't. A Republican governor would come under enormous pressure, enormous, enormous pressure to replace the slate of electors, send an additional slate of electors, throw, you know, the January 6th of 2024, whatever date on the calendar that would be, so that Vice President Harris is standing up there and now the constitutional crisis is upon us because she's got two envelopes and now everything has to be divided about 
who's going to be the next president. And it very well could be that it was clear that Joe Biden or whoever runs, you know, won by eight points in Pennsylvania, five points in Arizona, two points in Georgia. But these state legislatures, because they're so Trumpy and so Republican, and maybe the governors would be too, that now they've thrown the whole thing into crisis because they might just try and steal the damn thing. Folks, it sounds complicated, but what Reid outlined is the kind of complex multivariate operation that these folks are really actually very good at. We know because we grew up in that. That's what we used to do for a living. And it is a way that they can break norms and institutions with the veneer of legality and propriety. And so I think it's really important as we go forward to recognize just how serious you know, these people are on the other side of this thing. And that's why these races, the governor's races and others, are very consequential in 2022. Well, I would say that's right, Rick. And that's why we should also turn now to the U.S. House, right? So, you know, the Democrats have a narrow, what is it, six, eight seat majority. The gerrymandering process, let's not even call it redistricting anymore, but the gerrymandering process that the Republicans have perfected over the last 30 or 40 years even probably puts them up, what, 12 to 15 seats going into 2020, right? Before we even get started. Structurally speaking, yeah, you're going to end up with 12 to 14 seats just based on red states that are going to have, you know, a massive built-in redistricting process that is going to just write those seats in. I mean, you already look at the Florida maps are, you know, as they like to say, a modern art masterpiece. They're going to be very difficult to overcome. And of course, the Florida Supreme Court, dominated by Republicans, you know, they'll play ball. They will not overrule these maps. So it shows you what the long game is. I mean, redistricting has been the goal in Republicans in Florida. And they've gotten very good at it over the years. And so you're going to end up, I think, with a map there that really sucks. And you're going to end up with maps in a number of other places that are really going to be difficult. And the problem for the Democrats is they almost never show a willingness to play the same game. In New York, the Democrats could basically reduce the number of Republican congressional seats down to basically one if they wanted to. Why don't they want to? I don't know. Maybe they don't want to hold the majority. I can't get in their heads. but. It is certainly something that they could be doing that they are not doing. And I think it's vital that people figure this out, that this is the big show. This is the big game. This is the one where you don't get another turn at bat if you don't do it properly. Right. So, you know, we're still finishing up our list because some redistricting processes aren't finished yet. But the bottom line is we want to go in and find those places that even despite redistricting and gerrymandering, are winnable for Democrats, right? Maybe they won them in 2018, even if it's a different seat now. They're winnable in 2022. There are some Democrats that, you know, like Abigail Spanberger, Elisa Slotkin, Mickey Sherrill, who absolutely need defending as, you know, their districts have probably gotten a little bit tougher. And then there are those, Rick, that if you know you need to win 17 seats and you only target 17 seats, then you're sure to lose. So we're guys, we're going to go out and we say, okay, where are a few places that we can take some flyers? And remember that the way that we operate in these districts is not by money alone, because that alone would take millions and millions of dollars. And again, it's highly inefficient and often ineffective, which is where can we go build the nodes? And Rick, this is a good segue into how folks can help. These nodes of support for the pro-democracy candidate, let's call that. Now, they probably have a D behind their name. But think about them, guys, less as Democrats, as the person who is likely to say yes to democracy if in office, as opposed to no to democracy, which is what the Republican will do, or they'll say nothing at all. Right. And so, Rick, as we go through these things, you know, we've been to California a bunch. We've been to Texas. 
you know, I'm going to Michigan this week and, you know, we'll be in all over these states meeting with friends and allies and saying, okay, what is it we can do to help? How are we going to work together? What's that jigsaw puzzle going to look like? So that at the end of the day, whether or not it's the Ron Johnson race, whether or not it's the Alyssa Slotkin race, whether it's the Abigail Spanberger race or the governor's race in Arizona, that we can say, listen, this is how we plan to operate. You know, what it is that we can do to make sure that everybody is doing their part. And again, you know, collaboratively, right? Not in a hierarchical fashion because coalitions are too hard to do that way, but making sure that everybody knows what their job is. We know what our job is. How can we be helpful to folks? And guys, that's where you as our supporters and our listeners are going to come in is that if you live in these states, again, Georgia, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, you know, Rick also as we shouldn't overlook the fact that, you know, Stacey Abrams is now in the Georgia race. That is going to draw an incredible amount of money into that race. I think that, by the way, changed the ball game for both the Senate race and for the governor's race. I mean, you've got right now a divided Republican Party in Georgia. You know, if you get Stacey Abrams in that race, you're going to end up having African-American turnout boosted rather dramatically. And you've still got a divided GOP. I think this whole thing adds up to a much better playing field in the state of Georgia than we could have anticipated even a few weeks ago. You know, in Georgia, not only do you have a divided Republican Party, but also that a Reverend Warnock in office, a Stacey Abrams, as iconic as she is now, also draws in a lot of what I would call suburban white voters who moved in to the Sun Belt, right? They're not Georgian. They live in Georgia now, but they're probably still behaviorally Western or Northern when it comes to their outlook on life. I mean, she's going to have far more name ID even than the sitting governor, Brian Kemp. She will have an outrageous amount of money to spend. She will have the support of every last group amongst the Democratic Party. And then, as you said, Brian Kemp's going to go into this fight against whoever it is, a Trump supporter, because Brian Kemp refused to overturn the state for Trump in 2020. So Trump will be attacking him. And this goes back, guys, to the chaos theory that we're talking about, which is one of the best ways to be Republicans is to spin their chaos wheel faster, because once it gets going, they can't get out of their own way. And even in Georgia last year, remember, Rick, that, you know, it was people like Roger Stone and others who were saying Purdue and Loeffler were not Trumpy enough. They weren't really Trump people. They're not the right kind of Republican. You shouldn't vote for them. And a lot of people didn't. So, guys, this is where, you know, we did a lot of work down in Georgia during the runoff last year. We'll be there again. And so what I would say is this, is that if you live in these states, you know, sign up with us, lincolnproject.us, go to our Facebook page, sign up there. We will be in very short order deploying different groups, different cores, as we're calling them, CRPSs, you know, in states, because here's the other part, too, guys, as we talked about at the top of the show, we're going to need your help getting out the vote. We're going to need your help getting the message out to people, your friends, your family, your networks, to voters who may not pay attention to local news, probably don't have as much information on candidates as they need. And then ultimately, you know, doing things like signing up to be elections judges and poll watchers. Guys, all of these things matter. They all add up to the idea that more people we need to turn out and vote will turn out and vote. And that's where you all, as part of this incredible movement, that you all created, right? We lit a match and the rest of y'all, you know, made it turn into something spectacular. And so what I would say is, you know, get involved now, right? There is no time to waste. You've had the year. It might be stressful, but like get some rest because it is upon us. The hour is late, but it's far from over. 
And so what I would say, Rick, is, you know, everybody who's listening to this, get involved now. If you can't get involved because of work, health, time, whatever it is, find someone who can't. Do your part, even if that's finding someone else. And I would say this is that, Rick, I am confident that if this crew, if this motley crew of Americans who have joined us on this pirate ship do what we need to do next year, we've got a better than fighting shot of being victorious in November. We've heard this from a lot of people. A lot of people last year and since the election have said this to us. And it's one of the things I think is one of the highest compliments people could pay us. It's, you know, you guys kept us sane and you showed us how to fight. And that's, I think, how we all on the team, you and me and Joe and Stu and the rest of the amazing folks that work for the Lincoln Project, that's how we look at it. You know, we want to show people how to fight. We want to lead into the fight. We want to be strong. We want to show people how to overcome this machine on the other side because the stakes are too high to do anything less. Well, amen. That's right. And guys, if you're going to do it, now's the time. We don't have a lot of time to waste, but I know that everybody out there is going to do their part. I want to say thanks to Rick for joining me today. Rick, where can everybody find you online? I am at the Rick Wilson on the Twitter. That is where you can generally track my carcass down. All right. And as always, everyone, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.